Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Welcome. My name is Caroline Moasasi, and I'm FACT's Roundtable podcast host. I'm honored to take on this role with FACT, as I'm also a passionate allergy and asthma advocate on the national and international level, a parent of children with food allergies, and the founder of GratefulFoodie.com. Today, we are joined by Dr. Shazad Mustafa, a board-certified allergist in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Rochester Regional Health System and Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine and Clerkship Director in Allergy and Clinical Immunology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. Dr. Mustafa also serves as FACS Medical Advisory Board Chair. We're going to jump right into the topic on everybody's mind, COVID-19. There's so much information on the internet today, but many of us aren't sure how to process all of this data, which appears to be changing by the hour. We're hoping you can help listeners gain a better understanding of how we can find the right information and how we can tackle this pandemic together. Yeah, so I by no means consider myself an expert in um, what's going on with coronavirus, novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, which is, I think, what we'll call it going forward. But um, I am the head of allergy immunology at Rochester Regional Health. Certainly, we have some immunology crossover, and I do have some role with the system-wide planning for COVID-19, albeit it's very small. So I've had some input about planning for what we think will be the surge of patients. I've had some very small input in possible therapy and how to approach these patients if they are admitted. And then certainly from... Um, just, you know, a community standpoint, um, counseling patients and working with them and trying to get, like you said, the right information to people. There is so much information coming at us so fast that it is overwhelming and disorienting. So getting people, you know, the right information is more important than ever. And I'm hoping to do that for patients and the community. So can you start off with some basics about COVID-19? Like, what is it? Is it yeah. super contagious, which we think it is? Uh, just some real basics on need to know. Absolutely. So it's a well-known, fa- it comes from a well-known family of viruses called coronavirus. These are common viruses um, that are around. So this is a novel form of coronavirus, um, SARS-CoV-2, which I think would be most appropriate to call COVID-19 going forward because the 19 comes from, um, it was first identified in late 2019. Um, The first index cases come from uh, China, as many of us know, in the Wuhan province. And it probably jumped over from uh, animals, bats, potentially to humans, which is pretty common um, for viral viruses to do that. Okay, so it's a form of coronavirus, which importantly is different than influenza. And I think that's an important point. It's a different family of viruses. So there are important differences from our flu uh, back. Virus, which we kind of all have commonly gotten to know. Other important differences from influenza, it does seem to be more contagious than influenza. That is a fact. Um, so it's easier to transmit between individuals, potentially even asymptomatic individuals who feel relatively well. That 
I think everyone is comfortable saying. Part two of it is it also appears to be more dangerous than influenza. We do truly believe that. I will be honest. Um, we, I think the biggest shortcoming in our approach, and this is a personal opinion to responding to this uh, pandemic, has been our lack of appropriate testing. So the lack of appropriate testing has made a lot of information suboptimal. Um, but as best as we can tell today, it is definitely more dangerous than influenza. How much so is hard to say. Um, we're thinking maybe you know 10 times is uh, more likely to have bad outcomes with COVID-19 as far as influenza. But that number might vary depending on you know, how many patients are actually infected who we may not know about because testing has been limited. So it's different than influenza. Um, it is a common family of viruses. This is a novel form of it. It's highly contagious and quite significantly dangerous um, to potentially all comers, but definitely people at most risk, which you've heard of, are older individuals and folks with chronic uh, medical conditions. But you know, I joke, as I get older, my definition of older individuals keeps changing. And you know, we see a real uptick in the curve around age 60 of people doing a little bit worse. And quite frankly, 60 is not old in my opinion. So it's a relatively young population and chronic medical conditions for sure, but even high blood pressure counts as that. So again, that's a pretty common medical condition that people have. So it really is, it can affect a pretty wide spectrum of the population. So can you explain um, the testing itself and why it's so important? We've been hearing a lot of different news stories on that. Sure. So the testing is typically, there's two types of tests. To diagnose it, it's called a PCR. So it's a nasal swab, um, and then you kind of, uh, you run this test on it. And the testing has been limited um, for multiple reasons. It is a novel um, form of the virus. So we've had, it requires different reagents. Um, and it has been very, very limited. Um, there's been some, you know, I don't want to make this at all a political conversation. This is we're going to try to base this in science, some push and pull between federal government and local governments about who can manufacture the test, which labs can do it. That has broadened. So we're trying to test more people. And that's important. And the analogy is, if you know 100 people have it and four unfortunately die, that's a 4% mortality, which is very high, all right? But if there's a lot of people in the community that have it who aren't sick, say 900, so now your 100 turns to 1,000 people who have it and four die, that mortality goes down to 0.4%, which is still high, but very different. So it would be very helpful to have widespread testing to know people who have it in the community and aren't that sick. We're only testing the sickest right now. And that kind of skews some of our uh, numbers and understanding of the virus. So going backwards, we can't do that. We don't have that widespread testing. There are multiple tests being evaluated and FDA approved as including one that was recently approved, which is a finger stick for this. And results can come back in a matter of minutes, not hours. You know, at my institution, tests that are being sent out takes more than a week to come back. That's a real problem. Tests that are done in-house at my institution, which are 100 to 200, depending on the day, come back in about eight hours. So a test that could come back within an hour would be a huge step forward. 
The other type of testing is totally different. That's antibody testing. That's checking people's blood to see if they have antibodies to COVID-19. Folks who may have been infected before have gotten better and now seeing if they have immunity. And that does two things. A, it tells someone if someone might be immune from future re uh, infection. But it also potentially, if we talk about therapies, may lead to therapy because you might be able to use serum, blood from someone who's already immune to potentially address sick individuals. That's nowhere near you know, ready right now, but that's something to look forward to. Well, hopefully we'll hear about that some more. Do you have recommendations for people on if they think they have COVID, what should they do? Do they call their allergist? Do they call their primary? Do they call their health department? Who should they be calling? Yeah, so certainly if you think you have COVID, so what are the symptoms of COVID I guess you would start with? They tend to be com common symptoms of an upper respiratory infection. Fever is common, coughing is common, um, muscle aches are common. Fatigue is a big part of this. I've heard people who have COVID-19 report profound debilitating fatigue. We've heard in the news the loss of sense of smell happens in these individuals, and it can. We've heard in the news up to a third of people have some belly symptoms, loose stool, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, and it can. So it's a really wide spectrum of symptoms. What I think is a little different about COVID-19 from other colds is, or in other uh, upper respiratory infections, whereas most people recover from most in three to five to seven days. COVID-19 seems to be, folks are kind of getting better, and then around day five to seven, they kind of take a turn for the worst. I think that is a small differentiating um, feature of this infection versus others. And then it often leads to significant respiratory difficulties, difficulty breathing. So if you have those symptoms, you should certainly notify uh, your providers, your primary care physician or an allergist, whoever you work with and are comfortable with. Most of the time, again, going back to, I don't want to harp on this too much, but because due to the lack of testing, you will be told to self-quarantine for some period of time. But if symptoms are worse or you need to be evaluated, there are algorithms in every community to get people evaluated, potentially tested, and certainly um, for people who are doing worse, who need oxygen, who need additional therapy, consider inpatient hospitalization. Albeit that's happening too commonly, that is a relatively small percentage of the individuals um, that are infected that we know. Yeah, so prevention is obviously the key. We don't want to get this, right? And this is where it's so important. Um, and there is good science to support the uh, importance of um, social distancing. So this is a big deal. I mean, this virus is generally transmitted um, through human-to-human um, -human contact, coughing, sneezing. That's by far and away the most common way to transmit this. People are most contagious when they're actively sick. But we do believe there is transmission from people who have no symptoms. There can be transmission um, from surfaces, doorknobs, things like that. Um, so I always say risk is not binary. There's no such thing as no risk versus risk. There's a continuum of risk. There's rarely no risk. There's always a little bit of risk. And then there's low risk conditions, medium risk, high risk. Certainly being around someone who's sick and coughing and has a fever, that's a high risk situation. And that's why we wanna pull those people out of the community to quarantine them. Um, you know, Going out for a walk um, in the community is extraordinarily low risk. So somewhere in between the risk changes. 
So prevention by far and away is social distancing is a huge part of it. And more important than ever is good hygiene, hand washing. Um, you know, 20 seconds, we've heard about all this. Um, staying away from people when you're sick, sick, avoiding pub public spaces. So social distancing, good um, hygiene. That's the best we can do to prevent it. I've heard lots of folks ask me questions about various things they've read on the internet about ways to prevent COVID-19. And although we can be hopeful about them, there is no science to any of them as of today. Um, you know, ranging from vitamin C or taking medications proactively to try to prevent it. That just is not the case. So I would encourage people, again, it's nice to be hopeful, but we wanna base our hope in science. And as of today, we don't know of any interventions to prevent it, okay? So then, unfortunately, if folks do get sick, again, the majority will hopefully be treated at home. Conservative measure is how you feel like when you um, have a bad viral infection. Um, treating your fever, this is an important point, certainly treating your fever with things like acetaminophen or Tylenol, but there has been discussion about medications like ibuprofen and NSAIDs being detrimental in the setting of COVID-19. It came from kind of a couple of reports and then the French prime minister throwing it out uh, to the media. Um, at this point today, I think most experts, again, I'm not an expert, but most experts would say that using medications like ibuprofen and NSAIDs in the setting of COVID-19 does not increase the severity of the disease or make your outcomes worse. So people who have viral symptoms can be treating themselves with ibuprofen, acetaminophen, lots of rest, fluids, and hopefully get better. Folks who are getting admitted, again, the basis of therapy is supportive care. Oxygen, fluids, you know, the ones who are getting sick are being, you know, put on a ventilator. We've heard a lot about that. Um, and supportive care is absolutely how we manage the majority of these patients. Unfortunately, today, and this is changing, today there is no proven therapy for COVID-19. With that being said, I think it's worth discussing four medications that people may have heard of in the media um, and that are being used in different arenas to treat it. The first is an old anti-malarial medication that's routinely used in our office for rheumatologic illness called hydroxychloroquine. Um, the brand name is Plaquenil. Um, people have heard of it in the media. Um, it is absolutely experimental. The first use came from a small case series of 20 patients in Asia that showed it might have some benefit. Early additional studies have not been particularly promising, unfortunately, but we just don't know. So hydroxychloroquine is being studied, but it is absolutely far from proven therapy. Um, there is no reason for people to be hoarding it or taking it um, on their own. We just aren't there yet. My personal opinion, and this is just my opinion, I don't think it's going to have that much bang for your buck for COVID-19, but that remains to be seen. We have used it in some patients locally. Institutions are using it. A second medication is an antiviral medication called remdesivir. Um, it had got some um, press um, company was giving it out for compassionate use for patients that because of some limited supply has stopped. There is a clinical research study going on at multiple institutions, including here in Rochester, for this antiviral agent once folks are sick. Um, so that is to be studied and determined. Another medication is something that's FDA approved for HIV 
called Kalitra. It's two antiretroviral agents, again, antiviral agents, again, being studied um, for COVID-19 and has been sporadically used in individuals who are getting worse in the hospital. And then the fourth medication is kind of a potent anti-inflammatory that we use, again, for rheumatologic conditions. So part of the problem is the virus infects us, and certainly that can cause ruckus. But part of the problem is our own immune response to the virus is such a potent anti-inflammatory response that what, what causes trouble for individuals is the effects of our own immune response, which may kill the virus, but also affects other organs adversely. And it causes profound inflammation throughout the body, something called cytokine storm. And this medicine called Ectemra, um, tocilizumab, is a medication that tries to dampen down that inflammation. Um, so that's been used and is also being actively studied in COVID-19. So we have four medications that we're playing with. It is very early. We're learning very quickly. People are trying to do studies very quickly. I do think we should be hopeful about some of these but we want to base our hope in science and we have to learn a little bit more and hopefully we can learn something quickly. Thank you, Dr. Mustafa. That was a really wonderful explanation because, you know, it's really hard when you're just surfing the internet for data and there's just so much. So really appreciate that. So now what about asthma? A lot of food allergy families deal with asthma from the headlines I'm reading, people with asthma are at high risk. Can you talk about that risk and can you talk about techniques to manage? Sure. So again, that is considered a chronic condition and certainly have many folks in our office with asthma, about 10% of the US population has asthma. There are actually loose guidelines, expert opinions, again, people who know a lot more about this than I do for asthma. Generally speaking, well-controlled asthma is not a significant risk factor for acquiring COVID-19 or from experiencing complications from COVID-19. Certainly, I think a severe asthmatic has a higher risk of complications than someone who doesn't have asthma. But again, risk is not binary, right? So someone with mild asthma, although their risk from complications with COVID-19 might be slightly higher than if they didn't have asthma, I don't personally think it's a significant increase. So I want that to be reassuring because most people in the community do have milder, moderate asthma rather than severe asthma. Um, so it doesn't change uh, the ball game significantly. With that being said, I think it is more important than ever right now to control people's asthma very well. And the recommendation is to use your prescribed maintenance medications diligently and consistently. Um, most people with you know chronic asthma will be on an inhaler such as an inhaled corticosteroid. And I would encourage individuals to be diligent with that, to take it as scheduled on a daily basis. We really, really want to tune up your asthma. Um, so if you were to get sick with COVID-19, you have you know, as close a chance to the baseline population as recovering. So inhaled corticosteroids or chronic asthma medications remain very, very important. I think this is a good opportunity to discuss. There's been some discussion in the media that oral steroids, medications like prednisone, which so many of our asthmatics are familiar with, may be detrimental in the setting of COVID-19. So the recommendation there, and there's a subtlety here, is if you have COVID-19 and nothing else, you probably don't want to put people on oral steroids. But if you have COVID-19 and it's triggering another medical problem that would benefit from oral steroids, such as asthma, 
COPD emphysema, in some cases, sepsis, um, it is appropriate to use oral steroids. So when I've taken a lot of calls recently from our asthmatics who are having trouble with their asthma, we try to iron out, do we really think this is just asthma? Do we think this might be a COVID-19 triggered exacerbation? And then we make a very cognizant decision of how to manage it. And if we think steroids, oral steroids will help with asthma, it is appropriate to prescribe. So it's very different to consider folks inhaled corticosteroids, nasal steroids for environmental allergies. We're in springtime almost for most of America. We don't think increase the risk and have no concern. And we actually encourage our patients to use it. Oral steroids you want to consider. Uh, but again, that's something to discuss with your doctors uh, and your providers. Now, what about the use of nebulizers? That was in the headlines recently too, to not use a nebulizer. So maybe you can clarify that. Absolutely. So nebulizer versus inhaler delivers medication with a different way, right? The same medications, whether it's albuterol for rescue or even an inhaled corticosteroid, um, you can deliver it in different ways. Nebulizers have a way of aerosolizing the medication. So folks who might be sick, who are experiencing, experiencing an asthma exacerbation, um, have a higher likelihood of transmitting viral particles if they're using a nebulizer. So if your technique is good and for children, you know, you know, beyond four to six years of age, most individuals can get similar bang for your buck with an inhaler as compared to a nebulizer. So right now, it might be most prudent, most safe to try to use inhalers rather than nebulizers. Because if you are sick, you might spread viral particles less. And right now we're trying to do so much with controlling um, the environment that nebulizers may have a little bit higher risk than inhalers. But that being said, you know, people have amazing um, ability to get information. And there has been shortages of inhalers, albuterol inhalers, because of exactly what we're talking about. Word is out. Um, so hopefully, you know, most pharmacies are still stocked with it. Um, but it may be better to use inhalers than nebulizers, but certainly if you need a nebulizer for respiratory difficulties, I would encourage you to use it. In our office, where we're not seeing many patients, uh, we're doing things virtually through telemedicine for the most part. We are not, we're trying to fully avoid nebulizers. We're avoiding breathing tests, spirometry and things like that, because obviously blowing can certainly spread viral particles if people are sick. So that's the consideration. Um, not as far as the medication not being effective with an inhaler or a nebulizer, but potentially spreading virus. This concludes part one of Understanding COVID-19 with Dr. Shazad Mustafa. Please tune in to part two on FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Thank you all for listening to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes and be sure to connect with us on social media. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.